But anyway, turn to Acts chapter 8 this morning. I'm going to read verses 26 through 40 this morning of the great chapter 8 of the book of Acts, Luke's famous sequel to his gospel. And so Luke writes, verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he rose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge over all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And so the eunuch asked Philip, or rather he answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. And as they went down to the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Our Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would add your presence to the reading and proclamation of this, your holy word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's quite a story, isn't it? This stranger in the land, he's in Jerusalem near the Gaza Strip, near desert area. And he comes and and the Lord sets him up to be guided through the scriptures. Now, try to remember... In that time, there was no New Testament, not written. It was already completed by this time. All the events of it, for the, for the most part, uh, certainly of the gospel stories were already complete, but they weren't put into print. And even if, even if, say, the Gospel of Matthew was in print by then, there were no printing presses. It wasn't like everybody could have a neat little copy. So when you read of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you had to read it from the Old Testament. And so, in this case, he was reading from one of the prophets, right? And he said all of those things about the Savior and the nature of his coming. But he didn't quite understand it fully. So God called upon Philip the evangelist. This is not Philip the apostle. This is another Philip. 
we refer to him as Philip the Evangelist, and he called upon Philip to overtake the chariot. Now, I'm assuming the chariot was moving along, <laughs> probably slowly in the eunuchs in their chariot. Now, a chariot is like an ancient Cadillac, you know. I mean, it's a, not everybody had a chariot, you know. You, you had to be a person of some note and stature to have a chariot, and a, I'm assuming a team of horses pulling the thing. Didn't get too specific there. And Philip was told, go overtake him. So he must have been running along the chariot. And this big black man was in the chariot reading the the word of God. And so Philip went out to try to um, see if he could help him understand what was being said. And so I've entitled the sermon today, What Hinders Me from Being Baptized? Apparently only one thing. And so the eunuch said, see, here is water, what hinders me from being baptized. So today we baptize. We baptize those who have made a credible profession of faith in Christ. And this ordinance, this sacrament, if you will, is one of the great religious traditions of the churches of Christ. All churches baptize. The manner of baptism is different in some of the denominations. And if you'd like to know the truth, as Baptists, I... I think we're still uh, in the minority for baptizing uh, upon profession of faith by immersion in a body of water. Um, But we're Baptists, and so that's what we believe, and that's what we've gleaned from our reading of the New Testament. And so we have for centuries baptized only those who are of age and are able to make their own credible profession of faith. In other words, not babies or small children who don't have an understanding So they have to have a genuine faith in Christ as the Son of God as the only suitable sacrifice for the remission of sins. And it's amazing, really, because when you think of Philip getting up into the chariot with this guy, and he read that little passage, and Philip had to first exegete it and then then, um, uh, elucidate it to some degree and then make application. They went all the way to baptism. And so the eunuch knew I believe in this Christ that I'm reading. Somehow the Spirit of God used him greatly there. He believed in the Christ of the Scripture as he read from the prophet. And he said, what hinders me from being baptized? I thought it was interesting that Luke put that little note, this is desert. In other words, that could have hindered you from being baptized. You can't get baptized in the sand, right? But apparently they came upon a body of water. I almost, I'm almost tempted to believe that it just appeared there or something but because of that note, which goes unexplained. But um, he did know a few things, apparently, about baptism. Baptism is the sign of the individual's recognition of his own personal sin. Baptism testifies of a need for being washed. I'm unclean before God. There's something unacceptable to God about me. If you think you're acceptable to God just as you are, you are not a fit candidate for baptism. You haven't been convicted yet of probably even the reality of sin. So baptism testifies of a need for washing, of cleansing, and of the cleansing of spiritual indignities that offend a perfect and righteous deity. God is perfect, we are imperfect, and therefore in our imperfection are an offense to God. Sin is an offense to holiness. So baptism says, if baptism had a voice, 
it would say, I am a sinner in need of cleansing. I'm a believer. I'm in need of God's grace. It says, Christ was crucified for my sins. They are paid for. I have been redeemed. Immerse me publicly according to my testimony that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the perfect sacrifice for sin, and the Savior of my soul. That's what baptism is saying this morning. Baptism is the admission that no one stands before a righteous God by his or her own merit. Christ is our advocate. He's our counselor. He's our lawyer, if you will standing beside us, pleading our case before a condemning God and saying, I have paid with my blood for this one. And so he stands as mediator between a sinner and his God, between a sinner and his sin. Our gospel does not say we have not sinned. Rather, it's an admission that the blood of Christ paid for the offense that my sin was to a holy God. Friends, there's only two ways to pay for your sin. You can pay for it with your life and descend into hell, or you can pay for it by the blood of Christ, by faith in who he is and in his finished work on your behalf. Two ways to pay for sin, because the wages of sin is death. Someone has got to die. And so our gospel doesn't say that we haven't sinned. Rather, it's the admission that the blood of Christ has paid for the offense that my sin was to God. The sinless died for the sinner. What an amazing thing. I remember when I first understood that. I said, you know, men can make up a lot of things. Like when you read mythology, you know, that isn't real. That didn't really happen. When you read the ancient mythologies. But you read this story. Man could not conceive of such a thing. That God would die in your place because you were unacceptable to him? What an awesome gospel it truly is. The sinless died for the sinner. And the great part of it was he was sinless, so death couldn't hold him. Because of the laws in the universe that the wages of sin is death, this guy died unrighteously. And so the appeals court said, no, we can't hold him death. We have to let him free. Death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And so the Sinless died for the sinner, the innocent died for the guilty, the spotless lamb died for the sin-speckled members of the flock, the imperfect lambs. Like the elements of the Lord's Supper, the only other sacrament of the true churches of Christ, the elements of baptism are very simple and readily available. You notice the elements in our sacraments are very simple. There's water in baptism, and in the Lord's Supper there's bread and wine, things that People eat at the dinner table, right? So they're readily available. They're very simple. Hence, the obvious question of the Ethiopian eunuch. What else is necessary, he wonders. We have faith present. We have water present. We have a man of God to administer the ordinance presence. Let's get on with it. We're Baptists, as I said. We use the very famous Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. It's one of the founding documents of the Reformed churches of the 17th century. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I hope you all know who Spurgeon is by now. He's an Englishman of the 1850s or so at his, at his height, and he was probably the greatest Baptist preacher of all time. I, I've, I've been told he's the most prolific writer of all time. He's actually put more stuff in print than anyone else that's ever lived. 
I know I, my shelves are filled with the, the pulpit commentaries, the, the commentaries, the uh, uh, Treasury of David, the sermons. There's so many works of him, and they have to put it in a little tiny print today so you can fit it on your shelf. Um, and he wrote this about the Baptist Confession because he had it reprinted in his time. It had fallen into disuse. He brought the Word of God back to England at his time. And he said, this little catechism, if you will, is a worthwhile document. And this is his, his own uh, statement on the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. He said, this little volume is not issued as an authoritative rule or code of faith. In other words, friends, it doesn't replace the Word of God. It collates it. It puts it into reasonable categories for our understanding. Great local theologian once said, truth that is not systematized is jeopardized. It's best if we do systematize our theology. And so he said, it's not an authoritative rule whereby you are to be fettered, but as an assistance to you in controversy, a confirmation in faith, and a means of edification in righteousness. And so he goes on to say, here the younger members of our church will have a body of divinity in small compass, and by means of the scriptural proofs, will be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in them. So whenever the, the document makes a profession or a, or a proclamation of a doctrine, they give the scriptural proofs um, to show where the editors of the, of the document founded the statement and the belief that they're professing in the confession. And so as our ancient Baptist forebears did, we too turn to the confession which says of the ordinance of baptism four things. Number one, baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ. To be to the person who was baptized a number of things. A sign of fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into Christ, of forgiveness of sins, and of that person's giving up of himself to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. It is a picture of burial and resurrection. Newness of life. Number two, the confession says those who profess repentance toward God. And what does that mean? You're giving up your old life. You're walking in newness of life with Christ. If you profess repentance toward God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, these are the only rightful subjects for the ordinance. It's a real commitment. Don't make it lightly, but make it. Number three, the outward element to be used in this ordinance is water. Simple enough. He could have made it any number of things, I suppose, but he made it water in which the person is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And number four, immersion. The dipping of a person in water, the confession says, is necessary for the due and rightful administration of the ordinance. Now, why do they say that? Well, because the word in the New Testament is a Greek word, and it's baptizo. I wish we never translated the word. Or rather, I wish we did translate the word. And just instead of saying Baptize, we would say immerse. And there would be, that would wipe away a lot of controversy. We wouldn't be Baptists, we'd be immersers. Which is fine with me. Dippers, something, I don't know. The big denomination would be the big dipper, we'd probably be a little dipper. But um, 
They shouldn't. They should have translate. You know, we translate so many words. They kept baptism as a Greek word. <clears throat> I remember one time, a long time ago, at my house, Doctor Roach was was teaching on on baptism. Tom, I I hope you remember this time. And uh, and Tom said, well, in the early church, everyone was baptized by immersion. And someone said, well, why was that? And he said, they were Greek. <laughs> they spoke the language. They knew that baptize didn't mean a fuse or sprinkle. It meant immerse. And so the word is baptizo. And the, and the lexicon says, to baptize, primarily a frequentative form of bapto, to dip, was used among the Greeks to signify the dyeing of a garment. The Baptists were garment dyers, Right? Or the drawing of water by dipping the cup into the bowl. Notice it's not by effusion, by pouring the bowl into the cup. Bapto didn't mean that. Hence the total immersion of the subject into water, he is being dyed. In fact, Isaiah said as much. He said, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. You're being dyed, or maybe bleached, in, in, in this particular scenario. But of course, all of the scripture references to substantiate the conclusions of the compilers of the Great Confession are given alongside the claims. And two of those citations come from the text we're considering today. You know, there were so many texts I could turn to about stories of baptism. Some of them were very long, though, like the one where God talks to uh, Peter over here, and he talks to Cornelius over here, and they're far days away, and, they have to, and he tells Peter to go see him. And first he has to take away some of Peter's um, Israelite prejudice that he's going to the house of a Roman who is a pagan, who is a Gentile, not fit company for someone like the chosen of God, an Israelite. So he had to take all that away, give a big, um, if you remember the big miracle of the great sheet, he had to do that to Peter three times while he was dreaming of it and set him up to go to the, to the house of Cornelius. And so the story is long. Meanwhile, an angel goes over to Cornelius and gets him ready for Peter, for, for Peter to come. And they get together, and it's a long and wonderful story how he sets him up. This story was much more compact and preachable on a day of baptism. And, uh, well, I just told the whole other story. I guess I could have used that one too. But um, two of the citations come from this. One, and one of them is, Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. I always just loved that he just said that. Let's get down to business. I want to make my profession of Christ. What hinders me from being baptized? He's wondering, Philip, is there something you left out of the story? Like, you see the water. You hear my faith. You're a man of God, appointed by God. Let's get on with it. Is there something you left out? And he, he said, well, one thing. If you believe, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now I'm going to get to why Philip might have believed him. It's all wrapped up in the idea that the man is a eunuch. And so this wonderful story of the great eunuch of the court of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia, let me just say her name isn't Candace, that's her title. It's Kandake. Every queen of Ethiopia was Candace, the queen. And he's, it, this story seems to be this little vignette that's just placed in the and we never hear about it again. It's just placed in the, in the middle of the story of Cornelius and, and then of Paul being baptized and meeting with Christ and all this thing. And it's just this little vignette. And we don't know anything else. They didn't follow the, 
Ethiopian. Why did God do this thing and arrange it the way he did? Putting angels to flight to get this union to happen. And so the eunuch seems to come and go from the story of the first century churches. This is all you're going to hear of him. But let's take a moment this morning to consider the importance of the passage. Now, it's reasonable to presume that as he was a dignitary of the queen of a great nation, that he was God's chosen messenger to that nation. Sometimes God witnessed to nations from the top down. Sometimes he did it from the bottom up. What did Paul do? He said, I've preached and converted most of Caesar's household. Started at the top, right? And so we know that Christianity of all sorts flourished in that country since the time of the apostles. You know, in Ethiopia, they attribute the the bringing of Christianity to them to, to Mark of Mark's gospel. John Mark is his name. But his testimony to the purpose of God that a single believer can bring witness of the finished work of Christ to a whole nation and to a diverse peoples around the globe is something we ought to consider here. This man was a a great man who worked for a great queen of a great nation of its day. Verse 26, An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, and he said, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now if there's any doubt as to baptism as a sacrament of God, and a commandment of Jesus Christ to all believers, let this verse become for you Exhibit A. Friends, John the Baptist has been dead for decades by this time. Jesus has left the scene being ascended and sitting at the right hand of his Father. But just before his departure, he gathered together the apostles and he spoke about baptism. He spoke of the baptism of John. It was a baptism of repentance. It was a statement of recognition of personal sin. Repentance just means turn away, turn around, go in a new direction, right? And so Jesus spoke of the baptism of John. It symbolized a new, refreshing course of a life lived for God. The Apostle Paul notes another symbolic aspect of this washing away of sin. He spoke spoke of it as being symbolic of burial, We're immersed into Christ's death and we're raised up with him in life. Another symbolic importance of baptism. And so he wrote of it to the church of Rome. He said, therefore we were buried with Christ through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. As always, the Apostle Paul puts it so eloquently, doesn't he? For we have been united together, he writes, in the likeness of his death. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That doesn't mean your father. My kids call me the old man. It's talking about the old person living inside you was crucified, and you're getting a new person, right? That's a theme throughout Pauline epistles. The old man was crucified with him. In other words, friends, you died in baptism. There was a death that occurred and you got a new life. That the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. 
knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him or over you. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Friends, you don't have to keep crucifying Christ. Once was enough. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. The blessing, the symbolism, the ordinance of baptism, as described by the great Apostle Paul. Now, we in the Protestant faith, we're careful to speak of baptism as symbolic and not substantive, all right? But I want to wade through this carefully a little bit. Getting baptized doesn't make you saved. And I think every denomination will come out and say that, although many of them don't act like they believe that. They believe that it does get you saved. I've heard many a time at Catholic masses for dead relatives that he was saved by the waters of baptism, all right? I want to be clear running down to the riverside and jumping in and coming out does not get you saved. It's belief, it's faith, and this is the symbol of what's going on, the regeneration, the the cleansing of your soul. The washing in the water is the symbol of that, you see. But I hope, even though we see it as symbolic, that we don't see it as empty symbolism. Our sacraments are symbolic, friends, but our Lord is very fond of symbolism. He's the one that gave us these strong symbols, right? Our sacraments are symbolic, but they're not empty symbols. They carry with them some very effectual powers. They are a means of grace. And I know some would like to argue and have, even in the reform circles, that the sacraments are not of means of grace, but I would argue in return that any willful, obedient act of a person is a means of grace. Anytime. You obey God, it's by grace. And grace is distributed to you in such power that you are able to do that. Sin has no more dominion over you. That's grace. Until that grace came upon you, sin had dominion over you. Any willful act of obedience to to God comes from a secret reserve of grace, imparting the power in the individual to please God. The will and the power is the product of grace, both to will and to do For his good pleasure, Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And so submission to baptism is obedience to God. That's why Jesus himself said this very thing of himself. When he submitted to baptism by by John at the Jordan River. We read this. Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him. He said, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And then John allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There was a baptism ceremony. We can readily see that God communicates His love and power very often through symbolic gestures. 
and requires us to be faithful to do the same. And baptism is perhaps chief, perhaps chief in this regard. Friends, what God doesn't like is when we make up our whole own personal little symbolisms to reflect something uh, in the spiritual realm. That's what he doesn't like. But the symbols he gives us, he wants us to honor and to use and to respect and to continue until he returns. And so we can readily see that he communicates his love and his power through gestures of symbolism. Now, there are two phases of baptism. I, I wondered how to word this because we know there's, there's one baptism, but there is definitely two phases of baptism. There's the one administered by the church, which is visible and physical and ceremonial. And then there's one administered by God himself, which is the real and substantive and powerful and life-saving and life-giving baptism. And so we read of the words of the risen Christ in this, in this regard. Jesus said, John truly baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the world. So one phase of baptism is administered by man. The other is administered by God, by Jesus Christ himself. John spoke of this very thing to Jesus at the Jordan, as we've read. One phase of baptism is thrust upon you from above. It's something you have to wait for. The risen Christ spoke of this need to wait. He said, tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. And so they tarried for those days. In the day of Pentecost, they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. But the other is commanded as a sign of repentance. It's a public testimony of your new life and your new allegiance to God and the cause of Christ in the earth. And so in the first one, John is the agent of man's baptism, right? He's the one that's the baptizer. Just as Peter and Paul and Philip from our story were the agents of baptism, just like I will be the agent later in our service today. And water is the medium, so you have the baptizer and you have the medium, the agent and the medium, right? And so the agent immerses the believer into the medium. That's how it's done. But Jesus is the agent of another baptism, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It was asked of John the Baptist, why do you baptize if you're not the Christ? They knew Christ was the baptizer. John answered and he said, well, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. I do not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the baptizer, and the Holy Spirit is the medium into which you are immersed. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones I read a whole book on the last year at this time by him called The Joy Unspeakable, which was about this very thing, this, this baptism. Poor Martin Lloyd-Jones, because he takes these views which are clearly biblical. He gets accused of being Pentecostal, which is not good for a Reformed preacher of the stature of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he tells a story of how uh, one of his sons uh, met up with one of his friends. He said, hey, I heard your father became Pentecostal. But uh, he said, I take these two verses and I put them together because of this great truth which they bring out. Namely, that John the Baptist was constantly telling people that he was not the Christ, and that the essential difference between them was that he baptized with water and Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit. So friends, Jesus is the agent 
of the spiritual baptism that we all seek. And indeed, we've all had to some degree when we came to Christ. The Holy Spirit is the substance into which the believer is being immersed. The Holy Spirit doesn't do the baptism. You know, they, they talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's really the baptism of Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit. And the whole church is effectually immersed into the all-encompassing presence of the Spirit of God. He talked about it to the Corinthians. The new believers immersed into the church, which is the earthly dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Friends, He dwells in us. He's chosen. We are, He calls, the Holy of Holies, the holy dwelling place of the Spirit of God. And He'll never leave us or forsake us. He's promised to be with us to the end of the age. Friends, water baptism is symbolic, but it's effectual symbolism of what God is trying to show us is happening in the spiritual realm. It's a means of grace. It's the testimony of our immersion into the love and the presence of Almighty God. Friends, this is why we baptize. In order that we may see the importance of baptism, not to us, but to God, Our story begins with God sending an angel to spur on his minister. Friends, he sent an angel to one man in a desert to talk to another man in a desert and to baptize him there. I would say baptism is important to God, wouldn't you? He sent Philip to seek out the one man for the privilege of being baptized. Now, we don't know the real significance of the man, but we have some clues as to his importance. He's the treasurer of a great country, and the consort of the queen of that country. Now, he's been altered. He's a eunuch. He's been altered, gentlemen. Whatever else may be said of him, we can readily see, at the very least, he's a man of great commitment. Gentlemen, you're with me. Sometimes you're speaking code, because it's Sunday morning. The Thursday night session, I'd have just said it right out. Um, Verses 30 and 31. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And by the way, they made eunuchs out of people that guarded queens in those days. And there wasn't any problem like that old David and Bathsheba thing. You know, there wasn't any problem there. So do you understand what you're reading, he said. And he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? In other words, I need a church. And so he asked Philip to come up with him. Now he's a great man, friends, but he's obviously a humble man. He's a learned man. And so he's able to read Scripture. And you know it had to be written in a language he didn't speak, unless, it, unless he's reading the Septuagint version and he spoke Greek, which is possible. But I tend to believe he, he was reading a Hebrew version. In the final analysis, however, he's a man of action. He may, he may or may not even know how God worked behind the scenes on his behalf. We didn't read that Philip told him, by the way, I'm walking through the desert and God sent an angel and told me to come talk to you. Philip didn't say that to him. He just, he just went. So he may not have even known that. And Philip's readiness to be used of God to accomplish a great task. You know, I've heard of preachers that, you know, the big name preachers, they won't come out unless there's a certain amount of people present. And um, I understand that. They're in great demand. And there has to be a certain amount of money put aside and a certain amount of a certain size building and a certain amount of people promised to come if they're going to show up. Philip was a Man handpicked by God to talk to one man, so far as we know, right? So you've heard the gospel, friends. If you've been around here a while, you've heard the gospel. You've heard it today. Perhaps you, too, have read the gospel for yourself. 
But the church of God is filled with willing saints, saints like Philip to guide you through its deeper meaning. This is why true believers unite themselves to a local church body. Friends, the church isn't a necessary evil. Look around. These are the people that will be with you in eternity. Right? And a lot more. This is where the guides are. If you're going to be guided, this is where you'll find guidance. It's the place of learning and instruction in righteousness. It's the home of the gifts of the Spirit. They're not out there in the world, friends. The gifts of the Spirit aren't out there. And I've taught on this before. Reading is important, but you cannot get from reading what you get by corporate worship before God. And here's the other thing. It isn't about getting. It's about giving to God. It isn't, oh, I come to church, I get so much out of it. What do you give in it? You're giving yourself to God. You're not making excuses not to be present. You're there. Because you know the Holy Spirit's promised to be there where they gather and proclaim Him. And so you've heard the gospel. And you know that the church is filled with willing saints like Philip to lead you and guide you in the Word of God. This is why we come to a local church. It's where the guides are. It's the place of instruction and righteousness. Friends, it is the body of Christ. He's the head with the body. It's, again, it's an analogy that Paul gave. But he nicknamed the church for all time the body of Christ. And the head imparts to the body all of the essential ministers for all of the essential tasks of that great universal body of Christ, which is the true church. And so Paul could say this of the church, of, the, of Christ rather, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying, that means the building up of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of the, of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. Friends, when you look around, you get disappointed sometimes, and maybe you judge the other members for one reason or another. Maybe you think they're a lesser brand of Christian than you. That's why they're here. They're working towards perfection. I don't think anyone is going to say, oh, we, to a perfect man, oh, I, I exceeded that. I came past that milestone a while back there. No, that's why we'll be here while we're in the earth. To a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Friends, baptism is the beginning. We come as babes in Christ with the barest understanding of the counsel of God. If you ask the Ethiopian eunuch about the five points of Calvinism, I don't think he'd know what they were. Not yet. He does now. <laughs> we recognize the Christ of Scripture as the Son of God, but we, through grace and fellowship with other believers, come to a fuller and fuller understanding. Friends, we're not all at the same level of understanding. We all have to be led along. That's why we have churches full of gifted people of all sorts. As a fellow believer noted in our Friday prayer meeting from Job, she said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Job 28, 28. So baptism is a beginning. Being filled with the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of God is a never-ending journey. So the fear of the, God, the Lord is wisdom. It still qualifies as wisdom. But departing from evil is something we do incrementally all our lives. 
And that shows the application of wisdom, which God said to Job is called understanding. And we increase in understanding by fellowship with the church. And so you might ask with the great eunuch of our story, here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? And if you're a believer in Christ, if you've seen that baptism is that initiation ceremony established by God to mark the beginning of your walk with Christ, if you've learned that baptism is not only a means of grace, but a commandment of God, someone asked me this morning, if I don't get baptized, is it sin? Of course it's sin. You're breaking the commandment of God. That's plain enough, isn't it? If you have access to water and a man of God, what hinders you from being baptized? Only one thing, it seems. And Phillips emphasizes it. If you believe with all your heart, you may. In other words, friends, the question is not, should I get baptized? It's may I. There's nothing hindering you from testifying of your faith in Christ but the sincerity of your faith. If you believe with all your heart, you may. If you do not, you may not. We don't mess around with sacraments. Oh, I might do it, I might not. It's the sacrament of God. It's the teaching of this passage. It's the message of Philip to the eunuch. Friends, it's the message of me to you. And if you're here today worshiping with us, it is the will of God for you to hear this message. It's the will of God for your heart to be convicted of your need to submit to God in this most important area of your life and see what great grace the Lord will pour out upon you for obedience. Father, in Jesus' name, give us great conviction to follow after you. And Father, increase us in understanding. Let our hearts be comforted. Let our hearts be convicted by that same word of God that calls us to righteousness before a righteous God in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.